What's up? Welcome back to another episode of the Rambling Viking Podcast. Hope everyone's doing well, staying safe, but also not panicking too on too much of a level. I think that's something that's we've seen evolve over the course of uh, oh, two and a half months now. You know, we're nine, ten weeks deep into this, and you know, at first everyone was like, "All right, yeah, stay inside," but then. After about a month, people were like, all right, uh, <laughs> I burnt through my savings. Businesses were like, okay, we've, you know, had to lay off people, and we, but we tried to stay afloat. And, uh, but there has to be some middle ground here, some mitigation of risk. And it's once like everything now, because everything is a super political and politics are the end all be all. And I think that's part of the problem is not everything needs to be super overtly political, but even even when you are talking politics, like I was talking to my neighbor the other day, and he's like, "Well, I don't know what your you know political leanings are like," and and you know I told him I was like, "Look, I'm I'm pretty conservative, but libertarian, but also I like to think of myself as you know an in the middle, generally reasonable person, and that's where that's where I look to, kind of akin like I really enjoy Dave Rubin because." He's that same way. He's open to really talking to anybody because the way that you dispel bad ideas and bad thinking is with sound, usually, usually. I'm not, there's a caveat here because there's just straight up crazy people who are unreasonable and so stubborn in their ways and it, there's no rationality behind it. And But the way you dispel bad ideas is with good ideas and with good conversation and discussion, not not a forced shutdown of them being able to speak. And that's where this myth of, well, we, we can't give them a platform. It's correct in some ways. Like, I think it's super correct in or on point with when it comes to mass shootings, for instance. I think that when not releasing the names of mass shooters or identities and keeping them a mystery and you are just a mass shooter, nobody knows your name, you, you didn't get famous, that I think there's enough out there now to say, Okay, this person, this person got famous, and so that's what a lot of these guys are out to be. And so when they don't get that, then it does deter copycats. But when it comes to somebody you disagree with, and or has been spun to be, you know, an alt right or crazy this or crazy that, when they're really not crazy, it just the general consensus maybe isn't on board with everything that they're saying. I, I don't know how it's like Jordan Peterson, for instance, is alt right, you know, and it's angry white males who fall. And these are certain headlines that you hear when it's just like, it's not true. And he's not, he's not alt right. He's literally just like people take charge of your lives. And then the product of that has been, yeah, most of his audience is white male. But, um, first of all, most of the population in, just talking the U.S. and he goes all over the world, but most of the population and shoot in Canada are what you would call white. And then half of those or around half of that, you know, because it's male, female split are male. So it's like, yeah, a large chunk of the population. By the law of averages, you're going to have that on on any given person that could be part of part of your audience and a large part of, part of your audience. I'm getting a little sidetracked here, but <clears throat> I don't mean to right there. But anyways, that just derailed my whole train of thought. What I was saying, though, the general point is, you know, politics aren't the end-all, be-all. And I think we've got to start, and for the most part, it's, I'm not necessarily, 
I've tried to figure out how to deal with, okay, how do I deal with all the crazy shouting, because that's the way I perceive it, the crazy shouting online and in the media and, and, and the development of this cancel culture is, you know, because a big part of a conservative libertarian ideology is live and let live, and it's like, I'm not going to engage in your stupidity, <clears throat> but then what you see is, you see that's, I, I mean, I've talked to people here and there that it's just like, that's that's what they hear, and so that's what they think is truth, and then it's like, oh no, these people who are shouting the loudest are actually getting 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 a little bit of traction, and now you're having to walk, try and uh, walk back and convince these, these people who have who have decided that, oh yeah, that's the way they believe. And my first thought is, well, it's, it's not, I don't feel like I just need to go back and shout down them and try and be the loudest one in the room. But I think, but I can't just sit on the wayside and think my own thoughts and be like, yeah, I think this and I'm a reasonable person and I talk to other reasonable people. And... <clears throat> But I don't, I don't feel a need to always shout my politics or ideology. I think there's a happy medium where you reasonably engage it. And I think somebody who on Twitter who I think does it really well is Zuby. If you don't know who Zuby is, he's a uh, rapper, entrepreneur, all sorts fitness guy from the UK. Very smart. He's originally from Saudi Arabia and he moved around. So he's extremely cultured. He toured the US, but he... He he's very well. You can tell he's very well thought out with most of his tweets, and especially when he's talking ideas and and it's and it's very easy to follow. And I think that's how that's how I don't want to say combat, but that's how you kind of push back, I guess, and try and try and bring back some reason in this age of unreason and polarity. Is all right. Let's. I'm I'm going to talk, but t- two things. Two I think a couple not two things, a couple things, to, a couple rules to follow. Is first of all, don't get caught up in personal attacks. So something that I've kind of instituted is because I find myself on different, you know, trying doing little different internet debates, if you will. Is I don't I don't do personal attacks. I mean, I don't give them, and then a lot of time, and when and if they get dished out at me, I try and point them out. For instance, a long time ago, I got one on Twitter, and in the middle of his point was talking about, you know, I'm some idiot, crazy white right wing lunatic or something like that, and made all these, you know, jests at me. And I said, I'm sorry. I thought we were talking. I thought we were going to be courteous to each other and talk about and discuss our ideas and attack our ideas, not each other personally. But I was like, if that, I mean, if that's the type of argument you want to do, then it's been nice talking to you, but bye. Like, because I'm not going to, because that's not a point. And I think that's where a lot of people get caught up is they start throwing this stuff in there and they don't think about it. And it's like, this is your, A, it, it's one thing to be talking about someone's beliefs, but it's another thing than to casually throw in insults, maybe not directly at them, but then to the general population or people who hold those beliefs. That's insulting. And all that does is that that just makes me angry and more likely to dig in my heels. And honestly, it's a good way to end the conversation. Now, some people, that may be what they're trying to do, is they're trying to get you upset so you just walk away and leave. However, what you can do is you can calmly address them and say, that's fine, but I don't know what these personal attacks have to do with my ideas. And but you, you, you put a spotlight on it, right? A lot of times it gets thrown in the middle and then it turns into 
a personal squabble where you're talking back and forth and and now it's just become about insulting and gotcha moments instead of saying reason. And so that's that's one rule is I don't I don't get caught up in the personal attacks. A I don't try and attack somebody personally. I try and attack attack. I try and confront your ideas and the ideas because that's really what this is all about. Um, another thing to keep in mind too is to always always think through what about to you what about you say say am I emotionally charged right now am I fired up it's not wrong to do it but look at you can tell a lot if you have say you haven't said any some said anything but you want to respond to this post look through the post and see are they actually saying something of substance here or are they repeating talking points and then really straw manning and belittling, belittling the other side because you can kind of that's where it's like oh yeah pick and choose your battles meaning you can a lot of times you can tell if someone's if someone's reasonable or if they're just sitting there shouting and And you'll save yourself a lot if you. Mm, I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna engage in that because here we go. I don't want to promote that behavior necessarily. It's not that. That's the other fallacy that I just don't appreciate is that you're promoting behavior by engaging it. It's like no, I'm not. If that were true, then I've never been punished a day in my life because every time I did something bad, when I got confronted about it or in trouble for it. <clears throat> They were engaging the bad ideas, so they were promoting them. Like, it's just a total fallacy. But, honestly, this isn't even what I had thought about. This isn't even what I intended to talk about on this podcast. I really kind of came in open-ended. But, uh, switch gears and go a little bit more light-hearted here. Uh, Do some quick uh, sporty sports talk. First off, you haven't seen the match on that Capital One put on, that golf match between Tiger and Phil, uh, Tiger and Peyton versus Phil and Tom. Amazing. Very, very good. Very well done. It is like six hours, but it's worth the watch. And maybe you have to watch it incrementally, but if you can find it and watch it, definitely watch it. I mean, I spent most of my day Sunday doing that, and it was so good. So good. And I think for two reasons. A, there hasn't been any... Uh, <laughs> There hasn't been any live sports or any sports really at all. And we're so deep in the reruns now where I just had, I had like a 1970s, it was a 40th anniversary. So it would have been the 1980 game between the Celtics and the Suns that went to triple overtime. And I, and as it was on, I wasn't really watching. I was doing other things. I was like, this is how deep in the hole we've gone. And that's fine. But... <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so there hasn't been sports, but also I think it was very well put together and very well produced. And these guys all had – they were able to show your, their personalities. And that was the thing I really appreciate about it. It was really informal. It wasn't the quiet announcers sitting back and talking about, well, he's you know he's trying to read the green and this is very fast or whatever. And, you know, it's about 20 feet from the pin and everyone's – it's very formal. You know, like how a normal golf match would be. No. This was the announcers having a lot of fun. They had a lot of guest announcers come on. They could talk directly to the competitors. And so you had like Tom Brady trash talking Charles Barkley and, and or coming back at Charles Barkley's trash talk were having the best shot of the match by far. Like so many cool moments like, like that. Uh, so go and watch it if you haven't because it's really good. Now let's talk real quick about the NBA returning. 
It's been a whole whirlwind here, but it looks like that the NBA is very determined to return. They are determined to at least find a way to put a cap on the 1920 season. And right now, based on the information that's been put out there, it looks like the most likely scenario is it's going to be at Disney World, which, if you're not caught up with this, basically... They're trying to find a neutral site where they can house all the teams and basically it can be insulated and isolated, you know, because social distancing, which quick note on that. I heard something the other day where they're like, I don't know why it's not social distancing. I'm supposed to still talk to my friends and family through technology. I'm just supposed to not physically do it. They're like, it should be called physical distancing. And I'm like, yeah, you got a point there. But I don't know, physical, social, you have the way I've been I've been on a real kick on like what it takes your mouth to form the letters and say a certain word um for instance I had a whole big debate <laughs> with my wife about I like my echo dot because the term alexa is it rolls off the tongue much easier than hey google um because the hey takes a real behind it and then the google it, you know so it's the g's and so it's, you got to really form it um, Alexa is so easy and I just activated both of them so who knows what they're going to say to me <laughs> it's pretty funny but anyways that's you know physical distancing versus social distancing and it comes off the, the tongue a little bit easier but all in all physical is more accurate anyways anyways they wanted a place that was Basically, what they're trying to do here is they're trying to make it as a controlled environment as possible that requires as little movement as possible, meaning you're not flying back and forth to places, you're not um, you're not having to go back to training sites, and you're not largely accessible to the general populace because that's the big concern here is these guys are, to them, are worth so many millions of dollars that they don't want a bunch of guys getting sick, and then you end up playing with scrubs because every every night there's you know two or three more guys sick, and then it takes two weeks to recover, and that's a whole playoff series right there. So I get it. I get it. I get it. Well, <clears throat> so Disney World is the front runner. And it makes sense. It's so huge that they have plenty of facilities to house the teams and their staff and their essential staff. And they have plenty of facilities that they could easily utilize for training centers and then also venues to play in. Because it's already been established that there's 95% chance there's there's no fans. There's maybe some immediate family, but that's it. And so right now what they're looking at, based on what we know, looks like the estimation is... June, you'll have some facilities have already opened up for voluntary workouts, but they're very strict. A lot of places are being very strict about how many guys can come in, and they can't work out with each other necessarily. Yada yada yada. So I think you know the formal, the the through the players' union, training staffs have uh, issued a statement saying that they would like at least you know twenty five days to get the guys back in shape, which I think makes sense. Even though most of these guys have home gym setups and they've been able to stay in shape, it's it's one thing to be like just try and keep your cardio up and stuff and stay in real basketball form and not get in full offseason mode versus like oh full blown games and scrimmages. And so you could see whereas a lot of people saw this as oh guys can get healthy and this could shake things up. At the same time, you're gonna have you could have guys get 
have actually a higher risk for uh, in being injury prone. So they want at least 25 days to get the guys back in shape, and I think that makes sense. I think that makes sense. That's you know three and a half weeks, and that makes sense. So I think I think timeline is it's gonna that's gonna pick up in June. And they're looking at July to try and organize the playoffs, basically. The big question right now, too, behind that. And then I think ultimately that might push the season back. A lot of people think, well, I think the favorite consensus right now is like a December start or something like that. I don't know. But it would make sense. And then, you know, there's more questions now than that. But the big question is, okay, so they're only resuming playoffs, but is there is there going to be a chance for the bubble teams? And that's what's up in the air is I think ultimately the league would prefer to be able to give the bubble teams some chance and basically do like a first four in for the NCAA tournament, you know. It's like, hey, you guys got to kind of duke it out uh, because you didn't have the chance to play your last, you know, 15, 20 games to be able to possibly make, shake it up and get into the playoffs because – a lot of people are going to say, well, it's not fair. I didn't get my fair chance. And it's like, well, when a global pandemic happens, I think that's a huge, I think that's, that falls under the reason of, you know, when you played the what if game in your class and teachers like it, there's, you know, there's no, there's no excuses for you to have to, you know, miss this or that or whatever it is. And, and then there's always that kid, who, well, what if my mom dies or what if on the way we're driving, we get in a horrible accident and. And, and I'm late to school, and everyone's like, well, of course there's those crazy what-if scenarios. Global pandemic is a crazy what-if scenario where, as a competitor, yeah, it would suck and be like, especially if you were on, you felt like you were on the verge of getting in the playoffs, um, and then all of a sudden you get shafted, in quotes, out of the playoffs because, oh, I didn't get to finish the season. But, hey, guess what? All sports were canceled, and so... It, I don't know, kind of looking at it, it's like I can see both sides a little bit, but I'm not so, I'm more in the camp of like, man, that's crazy that it happened. And I'm like, I'm always, when it comes down to, you know, a a last possession in a game, you always look back and say, well, if I would have made these three free throws or I didn't have, you know, 15 turnovers, if we cut down five turnovers or didn't give up so many fast break points, it could have shifted things in our favor. Like the game... In one, in one instance, the game did hinge on this last possession, but in another instance, there was it was a sequence of events throughout the entirety of the game that put us in this possession to, to ultimately decide the game. And there are things that you could always have done better. And so that's kind of, and that's kind of how I'm approaching this. Is like if you're on the bubble and say, say they just started off and like up oh, top 16, whoever was in at the time of the hiatus, you're in. Everyone else, sorry about you. Then that's the way it goes because that's been the big debate. Well, is there is there some sort of playoff to get into the playoffs? And I just actually got an update earlier where it's like I think Adam Silver is developing, has developed, or is developing or pitching a a group stage basically. So your bubble teams would be divided into four groups, and they would be like a group play, like they do to get in the World Cup, and then. And it would be the top 20 teams. You do group play, and then the top 16 out of there, whatever, get to. Uh... So it'd be five groups of four. Anyways, I'm not going to do the math, but <clears throat> you would. And then that would get your top 16. And then it would feel like, okay, you, you, got, you got at least, you still got a shot if you were a bubble team. But then if you're in one of the top teams, you're, you're kind of in. So with that being said, I wanted to look at the standings and see where we stood and see how close things were. So we'll start in the Eastern Conference. 
Milwaukee, Toronto, Boston, your top teams, they're already in. That's top three. Then Miami, Indiana. And so starting at the five seed, oh, never mind. Miami and Indiana, Indiana, um, four, five. Uh, Philadelphia, who was tied with Indiana. So five and six were tied. But then it's a nine-game drop-off, roughly, to... Yeah, it's a nine-game drop-off from Indiana and Philly from the 5-6 to the 7-8. and eight. But the 7-8 and eight have basically the same record, Brooklyn and Orlando. And then your bubble teams would be Washington and Charlotte. Uh, I don't know how many they'd be including. So if we're doing 20, yeah, so you just do the next two. So Washington and Charlotte and then the Bulls and so on and so forth. Nobody cares about the rest. But <clears throat> Washington is 24-40. and 40. Yeah, I'll do this. So Brooklyn is thirty and thirty-four. Orlando is thirty and thirty-five. Then it's a six-game drop-off to Washington, twenty-four and forty. Charlotte, twenty-three and forty-two. Now, with how many games we had left, which was roughly two hundred and fifty in total, but I, you know we were on the final home stretch. You had about a month left in the season, um, so you think you had each team had anywhere from fifteen to twenty games left. Six games back is a lot to make up, but depending on schedules, you could get close. And so I think I don't. I, I, I feel like six is just a lot though to make up in the and you know and six. You're six games back. You have say 18 games left. Uh, I guess I can, wait. I can do the math. I'm an idiot. 24 and 40. <laughs> so we're it's that 64 games. Yeah. So that 18 games left. And. And, you know, 65, you know, some teams, you know, roughly 18. So if you're Washington or even Charlotte, who's two games back, because they are 23 and 42. So they had, they have, they had played one more game, I guess. So maybe they're only a half game. Yeah. They're one and a half games back. Is that, that's a fairly big deficit. And I don't know. I almost feel like there should be a cutoff, right? I feel like we should really look at the team's records and with having about 18 games left, what you know, what were your odds of making it and what have we seen and what's reasonable and have a cutoff and you know, say, hey, if you're within five games or you're within seven games, I don't know what it is. Looking at it, off the top, six games feels like a lot. Um Six games feels feels like a lot to make up, but it's possible. I guess if Brooklyn and Orlando, they say in their last 18, they go 9-9, nine and nine and Washington gets hot, and they go, and so they split it, and they go 500. Then Washington gets hot, and say, let's say they go, you know, 14 and, 14 and 4. Well, they still haven't made it up. It's only a five-game difference. They're one game shy, but they got close. And I think that's where six games is. I would say six games, for me personally, if I was doing this, six games, I think I think if you're five games or, or under, you've got a strong chance. But if you're not, uh, well, I guess you look at their win percentage too. Yeah, it goes from... 46 and 46% to 37%. It's like you don't you don't deserve to be in the playoff. First of all, your 7 and 8 seeds have losing records. This is just Eastern Conference nonsense. Let's move to where this conversation actually matters as far as having bubble teams get a chance. And the Western Conference. That's really what's driving this conversation. So, the Lakers are our top surprise surprise. It's Lakers, Clippers, 
um, then Denver, Utah, and OKC, which there was there was a battle there. So LA and Denver are only uh, one and a half games apart. So you'd have that one-two slot change. That's big news. Utah is only so we'll look at the wins. LA is forty-four. Denver is forty-three. Utah is forty-one. OKC, Houston, and Dallas all have 40 wins. So you want to talk about jambalaya in there to make a pun? Like, it is jumbled nation. Like, they are, they're, you have still have roughly 18 games left. Oh my gosh. There's so much movement that could happen. You could have Denver fall to the seventh seed. You could have Houston move up to the four seed and OKC move up to the three seed. Like, you could have... So much happening. OKC and Houston literally have the same record at 40 and 24. Dallas has played a few more games but lost, and so they're 40 and 27. So they're still one and a half games back. And then you have a big drop off of Memphis, who are <laughs> seven games back from Dallas at 32 and 33. So you already have a lot of movement within there. But I think I think at this point, if you're in the top eight. And you're, you're like, or we'll say the top six, maybe. You're locked in. You're happy. It's like, you know what? I think, I think OKC would take the five seed. They were, they were hoping to be able to jump up to a four seed and get that home court advantage. But you know what? At this point, it is what it is. Because there's not going to be fans. It's going to be a neutral site. So your home court advantage stuff kind of goes out the window. And it becomes all on you. And that's the interesting thing about this. You remove the home court status. Well, we got we have four games at our at our place and three games at yours. And so if we win all of our can win all of our home games, we can win and maybe steal one there. Then we can beat you in six. You know, it's these crazy scenarios where that lose it. And that's what makes this entire thing super interesting. Now let's talk bubble teams. So Portland, who had actually made a valiant comeback from being in the dumpster. 29 and 37. They are two and a half games back. Oh, nope. Three and a half games back from being in the playoffs. Very much in the race on the bubble. New Orleans, they're 28 and 36. Also, three and a half games back. Sacramento, 28 and 36. Same record. Also. And then San Antonio, 27 and 36. So. And shoot, even Phoenix, they're 26 and 39. They're only they're finally six games back from the eighth slot. So I think I think maybe that's your cutoff is Phoenix. But they're only two games back from the Spurs and two and a half games back from the Pelicans and the Kings and the Trailblazers. So like they're right there. You have arguably your nine through thirteen spot, fourteen spot, sorry, is is right there. There or 13 spot, yeah, yeah, 13 spot is right there, and that's where I know Damian Lillard says he won't play if Blazers don't uh, don't have true opportunity for playoffs. Which he says he won't compete in a restarted NBA season if Trailblazers do not have a legitimate shot to make the playoffs. Well, that's not really a headline to me because it's like if if it's, if they're restarting the season. And they're doing the group play. They're doing it so the teams who were on the bubble have a chance. So it's kind of an asinine statement. 
Like, like it's silly because they're either going to do that where you have a chance. Why would they? Why would they let you guys finish the season? But like, hey, you don't really have a chance. Well, to make money, but I don't think it would be interesting, right? Like, you're not going to want. I don't know. I guess they could, but all in all, the way I see it is, and I won't come from my perspective. If I'm running this and I want it to be competitive and I want to make it exciting, those bubble teams are super are the most exciting teams to watch at the end of the year because their playoffs essentially start early. And they would implement something so you actually have a chance. But this is where the problem lies is if he doesn't see it as a fair chance, then he won't play. And it's just like, well, that's purely subjective then. Because even by not just going with who the top eight in each conference and doing the top 16 teams and starting playoffs from where the rankings were, by not doing that, they're already insinuating that you are going to get a chance to make it if you're a bubble team. And being, boom, you're only, you're only three and a half games back. It's very easy to make up. And the other thing is, too, they're not trying to... The, the timeline for next year has already been pushed so far back that they don't want to push it any further back. They don't want to... Like December, you're already talking. That's your first month in a couple weeks gone. And so you're going to be either condensing the season to make all the games fit and it's going to be like wild, wild less like games every other day, like the lockout, or you're going to drop the total number of games by say, you know, you're going to drop it down to 70 or something for that year. And it's going to be very weird because the lockout season was almost that. And it was super condensed, but they played, I think they played 60 games that year. And it was still like, they were cranking out games, busy, busy, busy. So yeah. And if they had to, they wanted everyone to come back and play five games or whatever it is, that's going to take, you can do that over the course of about two, two and a half weeks. And then you go into playoffs and try and have regular playoffs. You're talking all of July and August, which then you get September, October, November off and December come back. So I guess the math does compute a little bit. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm just a little fired up. The way I see it is like you do a group stage and everybody, it's a round robin. Everybody plays everybody. And then you, you, ju- you just model it after the World Cup. And that's the best way to do it. And I don't know if it, you include everybody in that or how exactly that works with the rankings because so because here's the other question is are you going to keep it are you going to do if you're doing the top 20 well for, that's that's two teams that's the next two teams from each conference problem with that is Sacramento and New Orleans are tied and San Antonio is only one game back from the half game back from them so then when you have to do a little playoff between them a little round robin between all of them they all play each other and whoever comes out with the best record wins um I don't know, right? Because I mean, there's really only two games uh, each, and so you either go two and zero, or you go one and one, you go zero and two. But or everyone freaking goes one. And, well, they can't go one and one, but you could have two teams go. <sighs> it could work. <clears throat> but that becomes my question: because do you go off raw record or do you go off conferences for your bubble teams? My case is, and this would shake things up, you go off raw record. Simply because looking at it, your 9 and 10 slot, your 9, 10, 11 slot, your 9 and 10 slots in the East are 24 wins, 23 wins, and then your 11 slot is 22 wins. Your 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13 slots in the West all have better records. And they are they are within very they are within striking distance of making in the playoffs had the season finished 
as planned, as normal. They all could have. They all could have. Even any one of those teams could have gone on a streak and made it to the, and squeaked into the playoffs. So that's where that's where I look at. It. I'm like, all right. I would I would do. You obviously have your top eight teams in each conference, and those don't necessarily get an automatic bid. I think I because do you look at record? Do you just say that the seven and eight slots are up for grabs? And if you're in the seven and eight slate, do you just do this group play? And it's like, hey, you may have been the five seed, but if you didn't play well in this group stage, and you get bounced. I don't know. I don't know. Because if they do five, four, that's 20, and you eliminate four. Yeah, so your bottom one in each group would lose. And looking at these records, I would say you take, you take your nine, your 10, your 11 and 12. You take the the four, you look at overall record. You take the 20, the top 20 teams in the league because everything's already gone out of whack as is. You take the top 20 in the league and you do a group stage. Five groups of four and they round robin style and the bottom team in every group and you can do it where they, the bottom team in every group and you're going to have to have some secondary uh Secondary stat: If you know teams, if if you have two teams that are tied or whatever, you're gonna have to go over by overall points or game difference. I don't know. I don't know what that deciding factor would be because you know in soccer they get you get so many points for a, a win, so many points for you. I think it's two points for a win, one point for a draw, and then no points obviously for a loss. And so you can you go off the points, and then I think it goes to overall goals scored. So maybe it'd be points scored or something like that or or win different I, I would go with almost win differential maybe would you do an I, I don't know I would maybe do like a next gen stat possibly I'm not I'm not real sure I'm not positive on that haven't really thought this through this was kind of just on the fly that I decided to actually get in and talk about this a little bit so here we are folks but looking at this now my initial reaction that's what I would do so you're going to take the top eight from each because those all have the best records, top eight from each, and those who had already clinched playoffs, do they come into play? So your Milwaukee, Toronto, Boston, and the Lakers all had already clinched playoffs. Is there some crazy scenario where they where they start with they they get a tiebreaker? They can't like they have to play. See, I would almost say you'd have to give. Okay, if we were going to do it this way, if if they, this is so complicated and different. So if you'd already clinched, you start with, let's say, one point. And then each win gives you one point. Um, I mean, they could go full-on soccer style and say, there's no overtime in these games because maybe it has to be so condensed they can't afford to have, to for players to be pushing themselves that that long, that um in extra long games, and so maybe they go full soccer style. Two points for a win, one point for a draw, no points for anything. And then, it, you know, you obviously if you have the best record, but then it you know, comes down to points, and then it goes down to uh, overall points scored. I don't know if I'd like overall points scored, though. I'm going to have to think on this a little bit and come back to it. And also, you, you'll have to email me in on your thoughts, or uh, if, you, if you're a listener and you want to come on and actually have an in-depth discussion about this, I'm, let's do it. Let's let's hash out 
what this would look like. And I haven't really read up on what a lot of people are saying or if anybody has theories out there. But I'd almost go by like your win differential, not necessarily your points scored. Because to me, like a win is a win, whether it's, you know, 85 to 80 or 125 to 120. Because different teams are different playing styles. Some teams are more of a shootout team. Some teams, whereas soccer, it's like it's all very low scoring. Like you don't have that. But obviously, you can score more goals, you're you're better. And maybe, but I don't think it's the same in basketball. For you score more goals, you're better because you just may be a slower paced team who, like the the Memphis in the early 10s, they were the grindhouse team, meaning you'd have to grind it out with them. They were a slow half-court offense and defensively very sound. And so all when you played them, you, you'd you be lucky to score 100 points. Your score would be sub-100. Your, to, to, your uh, final score would be sub-100. Um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't break the 100 mark. So... That's where I'd almost come in and say your your win differential, meaning if you're blasting teams by fifteen or twenty, then I, I would I think it's you're probably better. Versus if you're barely winning by one or two points, it comes down to the last possession. I so, so I've convinced myself here point differential in that. So group stage, you take the top twenty and let's go ahead and say there's no overtime. Because I think that'd be interesting. Now, you might have some complaints about that because people say, well, you, you have someone in foul trouble. It can change the game. But you have to understand, we're wanting to finish this efficiently. And we can't, although it would be exciting and ratings would be better and you bring in more money, overtime games, I think, would cause problems. I think if you have a bunch of overtime games and you're you're already worried about health and longevity because of this giant break we've already had, basically a mini offseason because we'll be going, it would be like two and a half, three months almost then I'm going to say no overtime in the group stage, just like in the World Cup. Honestly, let's just model this after the World the World Cup style. You go group stage, there's no there's no overtime, there's no shootouts because it's round robin and you get one point for one point for a tie because I don't he might have a tie but maybe not. I don't know. That'd be interesting. One point for a tie, two points for a win. And and you want to basically have the most points. If you win, you'll have the most points. And when you tie, but if you lose, boom, you don't get them. And then this that helps for the teams who already clinch. Because I do feel there is something, like if you've already solidified your spot in the playoffs, if you're Milwaukee, Toronto, Boston, or LA, the Lakers, I need to say, because both LA teams are good. If you're the Lakers, you shouldn't be able to lose out in the group stage. Maybe you should. Maybe it should be the Wild West. But I would. that's where I'd have issue. I have more issue with that than I do with the bubble teams. I think the bubble teams need a chance, but it's but it's like if you already got to the point where you were guaranteed a spot in the playoffs, you need to, there needs to be some sort of assurance or insurance that it's still guaranteed. And I think that would be they start off with if you've clinched, you get you get that are, you get one point. So that puts you ahead. Or you get two points. You get you get a guaranteed win, let's say. Two points. And I, I think you either get one or two points. I haven't decided yet because this is all off the top of my head. But you get a point, right? So those teams would already start with a slight advantage. But they had already clinched their playoffs solidification. They could lose out and still be in the playoffs. They've clinched. So that's what we'd have. And it would be, you'd have your top eight in each because they have the best records. And then you'd have Portland, New Orleans, Sacramento, and San Antonio. Those would be your four uh, bubble teams. And they're all coming from the West. And yes, Washington and Charlotte may have... Uh, may have qualm with that, but sorry guys, do better than 24 and 40 and 23 and 42. Like, do better. The, 
It's just silly. And and I think I think with how it ended, you got to go with the top 20 teams because if you look at the odds, like I said, being six games back, I don't know the odds off the top of my head. None of this is founded anywhere. I haven't done any of the math, and that's fine. But just stick with me here. You have 18 games left, and you're six games back. I think the odds are decent that you that you can come back. Vers- or you have 18 games left, and three of the teams are only three and a half games back, and one team is four, four games back. That's a much more likely scenario that one of those teams squeaks in, or maybe even, well, actually just one of those teams, because Memphis, the eighth spot is eight games back from the seventh spot, or seven games back from the from the seventh spot, so then you're talking like 12 games, like you'd have to go on some crazy streak for more than one team to squeak in, but one of those teams is going to squeak in, and I think they've proven themselves by having those, I won't call them good records, but those <laughs> their win record that good that they are all bubble teams. And so that would be my case for it. I think we go top 20 and do we keep it split up east and west or be, that's the next question. So this whole podcast has turned into a real NBA, what to do about the NBA season. Uh, didn't really mean for that to happen. I know the first 10 minutes was random rambling, but I'll, I'll close it. I'll close it out with something. So it'll be coupled. I'll close it out with something, some life advice stuff. I'll, take a page out of Crowder's book and Crowder closes and closes with whatever life advice he's given. Uh, But I do like that format. And so I'll go ahead and do that. So Stephen Crowder, if you ever listen to this, I'm totally ripping off you and no, I'm not sorry. Uh, But imitation is the highest form of flattery. Am I right? All right. So if you keep it, well, what you'd have to do is so everyone, Oh, that's perfect. Four teams of, Oh dang! So you do. So what you do is your four teams who have clinched, your Lakers, Celtics, Raptors, Bucks. Those would be in there. That would be groups A, B, C, and D. So this would be the other question. You could do four groups of five or five groups of four. I haven't even thought about how the math works with getting wins. You want odd numbers usually, though. But no, the group stages in the World Cup are four teams. And you have four bubble teams. So I think you want four groups. So it'll be four groups of five. So it's perfect. So everyone who's clinched, you have four teams who've clinched. So they're in A, B, C, and D. They're not in the same group. And then after that, <clears throat> so now you're left with 16 teams, four bubble teams, uh, 12 non-bubble teams. So after that, it goes by record and so like it would just uh, yeah I guess it would just work by record you work your way down so you'd line them up and just overall and see who has you know there we go let's look at the league record that'll help me so I can explain this oh the Clippers see here's the awkward part the Clippers have a better record by one game than the Celtics but the Celtics because they're in the east they clinched hmm and if we're and if we're going out the window So, so the Clippers would almost feel slighted then. If you're going overall, the Clippers would have to be in their own group besides that. So what you would do is... So Milwaukee would be A, Lakers B, Raptors C, Celtics D, and then you'd go Clippers... Because I, I, there's just something about the clinch where I'm like, you've already clinched with how things were going to be 
But at the same time, I said that with like the bubble teams is like you already missed out and this crazy incident happened. So maybe we do go top four in the two LA teams and that bounces Boston. But Boston still, let's say if each of those clinch teams get two points, maybe they give Boston one point because they had clinched. I don't know. Maybe someone's really what I'm getting at. Someone's gonna have to lose here. And I guess if all the four bubble teams are already from the West, I, I think it's fine. I think I think the Clippers are fine with where they go. I don't think you put them in the Lakers group, but. So then you'd go, you go A B C D A B C D A B C D like that. So then it would be, so it'd be Bucks, Lakers, Raptors, Celtics. Then you'd have Clippers, Nuggets, Jazz, Heat. Then you'd have Thunder, Rockets, Pacers, 76ers. Then you'd have Mavericks, Grizzlies, Brooklyn, Orlando. Then you'd have Trailblazers. Pelicans, Kings, Spurs, and that would be our groups. So what I think I'm going to do is I'm actually going to spell that out in an Excel spreadsheet or a Google spreadsheet. I don't know. I'll do something, and then I'm going to post a Oh, how am I going to do that? I'll figure something out, but I kind of want to make that out and put it available. Like, I want to write it out and see what it would look like and do this. I'm going to do, this was off the top, like I said, this was off the top of my head, so I'm going to go back and reformulate all this at some point, spend some time doing this, because this is now super interesting to me, and ideally make a a spreadsheet of the scenario, and so you'd see, here's your groups, and then after that, you'd have your, your, uh, your bracket, your playoff bracket, and the big question is, I think the biggest looming question is, do you keep it divided I don't think you can keep it... Div- well, those four bubble teams can go. It doesn't matter. But do you keep it largely divided, meaning in the group stage, instead of doing what I just did and going purely off... Well, going off record minus the Clippers weird thing because of the East-West thing. Do you... Do you keep it... You have your East groups and your West groups and then you... And then each group will have... So you have two... Two groups from the East, two groups from the West, and then your bubble team just get thrown in the mix at the end. I don't know. Interesting, interesting stuff. Anyways, I'm done talking about that. That was a lot, and that was way too much already. I apologize for that. Hopefully, you you stuck in with me and climbed it out, and maybe it's got you thinking on some good ideas. And if so, send me an email, ramblingviking at gmail.com. Ramblingviking at gmail.com. Make sure to send me an email. But... Um, I I do want to finish out with what my original idea, which I've been thinking about doing a standalone episode on for a long time, is something that's been on my mind. I've just been thinking about. I was like, you know, thinking about like what's something to put out there that could be good for people, and it, it's I think the importance of doing something hard, and it sounds very vague, very, very general, and very much I agree with. But no, but when I see doing something hard, so for me as a non-runner. My fitness was, well, it's fallen off pretty good. And I'm getting back into it, though. We're back in the grind. It's going to be, we're going to get back to a good place. But it fallen off, this is a couple years ago, and I was like, man, I, I need something. It was hard for me to, to stay disciplined because I didn't have something tangible I was working for. The Basically, the, the incentive of just to be yoked and jacked and super strong wasn't enough for me anymore. I mean, I think we all go through kind of that jock phase as guys, you know, late high school years, college years, where we're just in the gym pumping it out and it's fun, but get out in the world on your own and 
maybe that's just not enough motivation for you. And like for me, I can't just go run laps around the track or run on a treadmill. I have to do like, okay, if I want to go and run five miles, I'm going to map out five miles from my house or two and a half miles from my house. And I'm going to run like to a place. Like I'll have someone go drop me off five miles from my house and I have to run back because it, it kind of, it, it's hard, but then it's also, I don't know, there's something more adventurous to it. Like I can't just monotonously run. Like I have to be, I prefer to do my cardio through playing some sports or some activity, you know, like I like doing a cardio workout on the rower machine and even the bike more than I would like a treadmill or just running laps around a track or a field or something like that. So that's just me. But <clears throat> what I'm getting at is I, I, I didn't have a goal. I'm not a runner by any means. Like seriously, I know people say, oh, you, oh, I'm not a runner, but it's like, no, you run all the time. Catch, I, I hate it. And the marathon, we have a marathon in our area. It was coming up and I looked at it and said, huh, a, a marathon as a non-runner, 26.2 miles. At this point, I'd already done a Tough Mudder, which was 13 miles with 26 plus obstacles overall. And so I was like, I've already run a half marathon. Sure, I walked some of that, um, partially because the person I was with couldn't quite keep up. And I'm not going to sit there and bash them. And But I, I could have run the whole thing. And so thought becomes I, I, a half marathon. I think we can all look at a half marathon and feasibly get in our mind that yeah we could train for that like it's it's a it's a very it it is attainable yes it's hard but you see it as a reasonable distance that is that is very attainable but when you look at the full marathon you're tw- at 26.2 i think even with even if you train your butt off i i think there's still a very real possibility for failure and talking to somebody who undertrained but Nonetheless, completed the marathon. And yes, for those who are curious, five and a half hours. But I don't really care about time as a non-runner, and I wasn't for it. And I know that's not necessarily why you're asking, but it's not impressive by any means, but it's a finish. Took me five and a half. I ran the whole time. Even if my run was super slow and pathetic, I did it. And there was some sideways rain at one point, and it was not not a pleasant morning (laughs) for for the first half of it. And then it kind of got sunny and hot, but then I realized, ah, sunny and hot the whole time, I would have been dying. But anyways, I look at that marathon, I'm like, I don't know, even training, I don't know if I could do that. And when you look at something like that, that you could still reasonably fail at with training, like say a triathlon, even if it's a sprint triathlon or something like that, I, I don't know, swimming across, you know, swimming a portion of a lake or something like that. And you say th- that to me is a sign of you should go for it. You should you should do it. Now the big point at hand here is when it comes to doing something hard. When you do something hard, you feel more accomplished. And and you will be better for it. I think we all understand that on a very basic level. Like anytime you do a bunch of hard work and say it's, you know, you're cleaning up your house or your backyard or something or whatever it may be or your car and you spend three hours on it, that feeling of satisfaction afterwards at last. And then it's like the next, say it's your car and you super detailed, it's super clean, the cleanest it's ever been, even, even when it was new and it's, and you clean it and it's so perfect. And for the next, you know, week or whatever, it just feels good every time. And you, and you have that good feeling of like, I've accomplished something. 
and what that does, then that's a driver to go and accomplish more things. And where I found myself getting getting caught is in when you don't when you don't find yourself accomplishing things and and accomplishing and, and doing hard things, you can get caught in this cycle of laziness and like, I'll just sit down and play some video games and do whatever and like like there's no challenge in your life and I don't know, you kind of become like a shell and you, you stop caring less. When you maintain the ability to do something hard, and when I say do something hard, the point of that marathon story was it needs to be something that, it doesn't need to be, but <clears throat> if, it, if it comes to like a physical challenge like that, like a fitness challenge, push yourself to do something that you might fail at because having the real possibility of failure is really what makes something hard. And yeah, if you fail, it's going to suck, but that's that much more motivation to not do it. And then on top of that, you could find out that maybe your mental limits that you thought you had, such as for me, that I could never run a marathon because I feel like most average people look at 26.2 and say, "Ah, I could never do that. Well, yeah, you've already, you've already, you've taken the first step towards You've already put a mental barrier up. You've taken that first step towards literally not being able to do it because you say, I can't do it. Instead of saying, I could try. I don't know if I can't. My mindset was, it's a long ways. And there's a very real chance that even if I train, I won't be able to do it. But I want to try. Because I I knew that that was something that was something that would kick my butt into gear even if it wasn't as much as I would have liked. It kicked kick my butt into gear to keep me pushing towards something, to keep me active, to keep me fit. And also at the end of the day, if I'm able to accomplish it, I just surprise myself. I showed myself, wow, my limits are a lot further than I realize. And I think most people's limits are a lot further than they realize, but they, they start by saying, well, I can't do that because something does seem really hard and out of their wheelhouse. However, you'll, I've learned that you People, you can surprise yourself when you, just like when you're at the gym and you're like, man, my arms are tired and I don't know if I can do anymore. And you say, just do one more and you do one more and just do one more. And the next thing you know, you did five more reps than you thought you could because you thought your max was 10 you did 15. What was that? What do you, where's that coming from? It's understanding that you're far more capable than what your, the limits you put on yourself say that you are. And so my wife has since then run a marathon and I had a friend who also, I, I guess he was thinking about doing the half and I talked him into it and doing the full and like he runs marathons now. He's a marathoner. I'm not trying to sit here and brag that I made him into what he is. No, because I can't take credit for that at all. He has done that. I maybe helped facilitate at some point and, but, but I didn't, I don't think I did anything major there, but it's really cool to look at that and be like, wow, he's like. Like he goes out there, does all these marathons and is running all the time and has really become like falling in love with it and found something. And I think, and all I was doing was casually talking about it and yeah, I'm passionate, but I'm like, look, go and try it. Give it a shot. If you don't do it, that's okay. Or if you can't do it, that's okay. If you fail, whatever failing looks like, if you don't make it, that's okay. That's the other thing is you have to learn how to fail and be okay with it too. That's the flip side of that is if you, if you're not prepared, if you think, yeah, all right, I'm going to go do this, but then you let your, but then you do hit some physical limit and something happens, say you, you know, you cramp up beyond belief or shoot, you get such a bad shin splint and then you have, it turns out you got a hairline, you developed a hairline fracture or something happens, you know, like you have some injury or something, you can't do it is the key is to make sure that you don't, you also don't 
beat you, overly beat yourself up over this. Um, and, and that you, you understand that, man, I couldn't do that, but you know, I maybe found my limit and I found something that I can work on and understood it's, it's kind of like the way that I see finding your limits is kind of like wandering through the room in the dark. You're, you're kind of walking in, in, in a place you're not familiar with. You're kind of feeling around. You're like, all right, I feel like you may say, okay, I think there's a wall three feet in front of me. And so you walk really slowly and you're kind of like shuffling your feet so your toes will tap it and you have your hands out in front of you. And maybe, maybe it ends up being seven feet in front of you. And then, oh, I found it. So with failing is instead of three feet, it may be one foot. And that's fine. But you but you found your limit, you know your limit, and you can always say, man, I tried it. I couldn't quite do it. Just like, for instance, I've tried the 72-ounce steak challenge. I wasn't real serious about it and that actually, like, I didn't train and to really try and beat it. The 72-hour steak challenge in Amarillo, the um, Big Texan, where you eat a 72-ounce steak, a baked potato, a side salad, and, like, three coconut shrimp in, in under an hour. Yeah, I ate 40 of the 72 ounces and immediately threw them all up. Uh, but 40... That's over half, and that's more than I thought I could do. And also, best thing is when you do fail that, you still get a, you still get to keep your boot shaped glass and your uh, you get a shirt that says I attempted it. The steak is not free; it's seventy two dollars. But at a do- but then what steak is ever a dollar an ounce? Think about it. You get an eight ounce steak, a twelve ounce steak. You're talking eighteen, twenty, twenty five dollars, depending on what kind of steak you're getting. Or you go to a really nice steakhouse and you get a fourteen ounce ribeye. You're talking forty or fifty bucks. Yeah. So the steak is $72 and it's a good steak and they cook it to you. And so even if you don't complete it, yeah, you just spend a lot of money. But you know what that did? That fed me and my family the next night. It fed everybody. (laughs) The remaining 32 ounces of steak, the two pounds of steak left over was dinner the next day. And so for like four people. So it was worth it. But getting off track there. But I failed and I learned that, man, found my limit but at the same time it's like it's learning to not necessarily get down on yourself about it but understanding what just happened and what that experience was so i think you should we should all push to do something hard and whether that's you're you like writing and you want to try and write a book but that's just so much and how could you do that well give it a shot now the next thing i'm going to say that is absolutely imperative part of this when it comes to psychology. And this isn't actually backed by any research necessarily. This is purely my observation, my personal experience here. But I do, I do think it rings true because I think we'll all identify with this. Is when it comes to doing something like that, for instance, I've talked to people and they're like, well, I want to do a half and then I'll sign up for it. But, or I want to get in better shape before I sign up for something. It's usually what you'll hear. So there's a cue I've heard plenty of times. Well, it's just so long and I'd have to train and I'd have to really get in shape before I'd be ready to do that. And so then the reason becomes, and this sounds good, it sounds good. The reason becomes, let me get into shape or better, better shape and then I'll sign up for this. The problem that people don't see is the way that we're wired and the way that we work is, and I didn't say this because I knew myself better. I knew myself personally. I'm not saying I knew humanity better, but I knew myself good enough to know that me saying, well, I'm going to get into shape. My problem is I'm being lazy. I don't have anything to push for. And, and so I can say, well, I want to run a marathon, so I'm going to start training for it. But then there's no accountability there. Because if I don't get in shape or I never get, if say I make, oh, I want to be able to run 10 miles 
in this time or just be able to run 10 miles before I would sign up and then start training. Well, if I never get to 10 miles, I'm never going to sign up and I'm never going to do it. And I think the likelihood of that is much higher than you have to, this is a, in this type of scenario where you're doing something maybe outside of your wheel, doing something hard. And I know I'm really harping on physical fitness here, but just because that's the best examples I have, but you're doing something hard, say a marathon. And you're like, I'm not a runner. I can't do this. I've never run more than, for me, I'd never run more than like three miles, five. No, wait, I'm an idiot. I did the Tough Mudder. I had done 13 miles. But anyways, outside of that, I had never run, like just flat out run anything. Straight up just running five miles maybe was the most I'd done. And that was in training for my Tough Mudder. And that was, and that almost, that destroyed me. (laughs) But five miles. And But anyways, you you look at that and you say, well, I want to get into shape so then I can do this. But I think on some level, when you, when you actually sit back and think about that and say, well, am I actually going to do that? Because what's what's motivating me to do that besides that? Like, because it's really hard. I may not be able to do it. It's a strong chance of failure, even if I do train properly. Like, there's not a lot of factors working in your favor to really get you excited about doing this. And so you kind of need an obligatory uh, factor, something that kind of forces you into it. And you know what that is? So it was, it was November when I made this decision, October, November, when I made this decision end of April is when the marathon was. So you're talking, I have about six months ish, five, six months ish to train, which is more than enough time, but you really have to commit and you have to be disciplined. Like you're talking much shorter than that and you're going to be cutting it close. Well, what I did is when I was like, Oh, I started, went on the website, started looking at it and it was like a hundred bucks to register or something like that. And I was like, man, I don't know. And I was like, you know what? I was like, if I'm, if I'm really going to be serious about this, I have to go ahead and pull the trigger and sign up now when I'm out of shape. When, when I say out of shape, I'm still in good shape, but when I'm, you know, not in shape, I'm not sure. I haven't started training at all. And when I did, I pulled the trigger and I signed up. You have to shoot first, ask questions later in these types of situations. Most of the time. I can't speak for everything, but in this, in my example, yes, that is what you have to do. And because, you know, what happened then for me, somebody who's frugal and a hundred bucks, especially because I was still in college, it was a lot of money at the time. I said, I just spent a hundred bucks on this. I'm invested financially. And most people don't want to waste a hundred bucks. Some people might be okay with doing that and they, that may not be enough incentive. So they may need friends or something like that. But the way that I am, I was like, all right, a hundred bucks. I was like, well, I'm invested now and I'm officially signed up. So I'm doing it. So now I'm left with one, I'm left with two options. I can either train, get in shape and do this thing, or I can not train and then totally embarrass myself and feel like an idiot, like I waste, wasted a hundred dollars. And you know what happened? I didn't quite train uh, fully or normally because there's, there's some externalities there because there was the nature of what I did. I was very active. And so it counted as a workout, but I never ran more than 10 miles because in my, in my humble opinion, my perspective, and I think this does ring true though. A marathon is, there are two components. There's, there's your, your VO2 or what we'll call your cardio. There's the cardiovascular and then there's a soft tissue or the impact related. 
And so your cardiovascular, you're not running very fast in a marathon unless you're like seriously competed. You're not running very fast. You're running for a long time. You're going to be running for three or four hours, maybe five, you know, let's say four hours. You're going to be running for four hours. That's a long time to be running. You need to make sure. But the thing about cardio is it, it's kind of low and slow in what I mean is that you're not running very fast and you're not pushing your heart rate. You just have to be able to maintain this pace. I, I think I average like a 12, 12 and a half minute pace, which isn't that fast and not that hard to maintain. You just have to maintain that, you know, an average pace that's pretty light and be able to do that for a long time. The bigger, the, the bigger, the, I actually lied, there's three components. So you have your cardiovascular, you have your, your soft tissue, your impact, and you have your mental and I think the mental is the most important. The physical is not that bad. Now, in ranking the physical, so your least, the least important or the thing you need to focus on the least, and like I said, this isn't proved necessarily. This is my personal experience, so please don't follow this exactly because if you're not the same type of person as me, this may not work for you, but I definitely think that a marathon is like 80% mental, 20% physical, and and 15% of the physical is your your impact, meaning how well can you can your body hold up physically, your joints, your your feet in the impact of running 26.2 of running f- for 4 hours because we've already established you're not going to be you yeah, your heart rate will be up there, maybe 100, 120 maybe, but that's very that's like very warm up like heart rate and it may not even get to that. So your cardiovascular system isn't going to be working super, super hard. It's just going to have to work for a long time. So yeah, get your cardio up, but you can do wind sprints and get your cardio up. The impact is the next thing. And that's actually, physically, that's definitely the most important. Oh my gosh. Because let's say you're, you go and you just run you know, five miles at a time, but you're running real fast because you're like, hey, I'm trying to get into shape. Your most important days in your training because you can go and do 500 jump ropes and that'll get your cardiovascular system in the same shape that it would if you went and tried to run, um, you tried to run like, you know, one mile sprint repeats or whatever it is. And your your cardio is, you can do that, train that so many different ways. Your impact though, you, you can really only train in one way and that's by going and running a long ways. Because a lot of it, you're going to be on pavement, actually all of it, you're going to be on pavement. And so you need good equipment, yes. And you need good shoes, but you don't need brand new shoes. You know, there's lots of little things in there. I'm talking big picture factors though, your impact. Because if your soft tissue is not, your body will adapt. Meaning if you go and you start running, you run five, seven, eight miles, you know, you might get some shin splints, your knees might hurt, your joints might hurt, your feet might hurt a little bit. But over time, as you do that regularly, your body says, man, we're doing this a lot. I need to strengthen up these areas that are under high impact. And and we'll do. And you don't necessarily have to get to where you run 26 miles, but you need to get where you run upper teens. Because at that point, eight, what's 18 versus 26, it's not that big of a difference because at that point in the game, it's really coming down to mental. If you can run 20 miles, you can run 26.2 in terms of your soft tissue, your impact. Like I said, my personal opinion, this isn't necessarily scientific, but I like to think I'm it's decent insight. Now, lastly, is the mental aspect. That's by far the most important because like we talked about earlier, the first step in not being able to do a marathon is saying, well, I can't do it. I'm very particular about language sometimes and especially with how you talk to yourself and, and, ha- and leaving the door open versus closing it totally. And I think this is something, and this is important when it comes to doing something hard, doing something you might not be able to do. And that is 
there's a big difference in between in saying, oh, I can't, I can't run that far. That's too far. And man, I'm not a runner. I've never run anywhere close to that far. I don't know if I could, I'm not sure I could run that far, but I can try, but I can train and try. There's a, it, yeah, one of those was really short and simple. One of those was a little bit more elaborate, but the big, really the big fundamental difference there is one of them left the window of opportunity open and cracked slightly for you subconsciously. And this is, this is, people don't even realize this. So that's the thing is you don't realize what you're actually doing. And, and, but that, but that like puts your mindset in a certain aspect. If you say, I can't do it, but then you still try and go train, your training's not going to be very good. Your, your, your mentality is not going to be very good. And let me tell you, once you get past the 13 mile marker, sometimes even before then, I'd say around the 15 mile for me and you hit, you know, you start coming up on that wall. It's very important that you have mentally prepared yourself to when you get totally physically exhausted on how am I going to continue? How am I going to finish out? For me, it was, I know that the faster your arms move, the faster your feet go. So your arms are connected to your feet when it comes to running. So I said, as long as I don't stop moving my arms, I, I can keep running. And that's what I did. And I just said, just keep my arms moving. And when I couldn't feel my legs, I just kept my arms moving and I was still moving. And I just did that to the end. But going back to what I was saying is one of those leaves a window of opportunity open enough and the possibility open. Yeah. It says, Hey, it's going to be a challenge. This isn't going to be an easy window to get through. It's a small window or it's really rusted over and I'm going to have to like put a lot of work in and maybe, maybe get de-rusted a little bit, take a wire brush to it, do some different things. The other one says, Oh, there's no hope here at all. One of them Because all you need is that sliver of hope, that sliver of opportunity. And even if you don't necessarily believe it, force yourself to say it that way and and fake it until you make it. Quite honestly, yeah. It because that that is a real thing. And honestly, how you talk to yourself can help you get through, even if you don't necessarily always believe it, is very important. Because the moment you start talking negatively to yourself, you're gonna believe that much easier than if you talking positively. But I don't know how we got here, but my main point was do something hard and push yourself and push your limits because you'll be surprised at what you'll be able to accomplish. Always leave that window of opportunity open and understand that a lot of times with these things, you have to pull the trigger on it before you have to shoot first, ask questions, shoot first, train later is what we'll say. <clears throat> and that that's the type of mentality you have to have because you have to force yourself into an uncomfortable position or into a position where you are now committed in some way, shape, or form that then puts you in a position where it's like, well, I have to train. been left with no other choice. And that's that's how I have to treat myself personally, and you may not be that way, and that's fine. But that's just my little bit of advice. And I think it's, I think it's important. It's something that I honestly have kind of lost sight of, have kind of become lazy, have become fat for my standards, and I'm trying to get back in, I'm getting back into shape. And I made one simple commitment. A, I'm paying for a gym. The moment I'm paying for a gym, I'm going to have to use it. Even if I just go and stretch. I'm going to use it, but I have to feel like I'm using it. For me, being financially invested in some way, shape, or form, like I'm like, I'm not going to waste my money. That's my mindset. And then secondly, you don't have to make some crazy big commitment, meaning for me, getting back into the gym, what I told myself is understand that sometimes you have to do it incrementally, right? To kind of build up that want to again. For me, it was, I want to commit to going to the gym every day. When I say every day, weekends are dependent. Uh, so I'll say at least five days a week, but general, very general mindset, basic statement. It was every day, every workday. We'll say that when we go to the gym every 
day. And sometimes, I'm going to be honest, sometimes my visits to the gym have been 25 minutes and it's been very not that productive. I have done some dynamic stretching maybe and kind of got my body warm and then did did a semi-hard bike ride or something like that or rode a little bit. And you know, it may not have been super beneficial, but it's, but what I'm doing is I'm, I'm staying disciplined, staying committed. And you know what I've found is as I continue to go to the gym, it, it builds some positivity around it. I'm not necessarily putting a giant burden on myself because I think that's a lot of deterrent. Sometimes people say, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. <clears throat> start simple. Start with what you do know. If all you know is elliptical and you don't, you don't know how to lift weights or anything like that, we'll just go to the gym and get on the elliptical and run and run it hard. Try and run it hard. Maybe you can only go hard for 10 minutes. Maybe you go hard for 20 minutes. Maybe you just want to go medium for 40 minutes. Do something. And if 40 minutes feels like too long, that's fine. Five or 10 minutes, just do it. But the first step is, well, I'm out there doing a part. A part of it, I'm getting something done, is always better than not doing anything at all. For me, at least going to the gym, I'm at least going to do something mildly physically active more so than I would if I didn't go to the gym that, that day. And where I found myself now is I found my workouts getting better, they're getting harder, I'm pushing myself more, and I'm, I'm going to see changes. And the motivation is growing. So sometimes discipline builds your motivation. You may have the thought or the idea, but you need discipline. And I'm finding out in my life that honestly, I think discipline is more important than motivation. That's a topic for a different day though. I'm already over an hour. I want to thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Steven Crowder, if you ever listened to this, and I just did a Crowder closes type moment, and I don't care, but uh, I do want to give you credit where credit is due. Thanks for listening. Love to know all your thoughts. Going to come back with follow-up NBA episode, and maybe I can get a good friend and listener Connor on here, and he can we can kind of give our insight and talk about the models and the ideas and you know, what we think the NBA should do and what, it, what this playoff situation could look like. Cause I think right now it's kind of the most interesting thing until sports are, we have some sports back. So, uh, if you want to give me any of your feedback or any of your thoughts, the rambling Viking at gmail.com. That is the rambling Viking at gmail.com. Please like subscribe, leave a review, all that good stuff. Good stuff. If you enjoy this podcast, spread it, spread it to your friends, share the word. We can grow this listener base and we can make this into a community where we have conversations. I'm not, I love having discussions and conversations. I think it's always more productive when I'm able to talk with someone because there's always something I'm not thinking about and I always get caught up in some certain mindset in some way, shape or form. So thanks for listening. Hope you have a great rest of your day, rest of your week and an awesome summer. Stay safe. And I hope that you, um, and stay smart with this COVID-19 nonsense. Peace.